0: So guys, thank you very much
1: for being here on a Friday night. And I know that we're expecting quite a few more, so they'll either pour in late or they forgot, and will show up tomorrow morning or something. So uh, could happen. Uh, but please help yourself. There's still, I think, more sandwiches and stuff uh, throughout the, the night. Feel free to do that. And um, just a heads up, I think on your table there is a bibliography for further reading. There's also notes for uh, the session tonight and tomorrow. And name tags. The name tags will actually be helpful too, because I know John who will introduce in the minute is going to kind of walk around a little bit, not be anchored to here and just uh, a little bit more interactive than uh, the past one in the Old Testament maybe. Uh, and there's also cards on your table where you can feel free to write questions. Uh, we'll have time for questions tonight and tomorrow. But also on Sunday morning, uh, John is going to be taking over the Poima ACG. Uh, so you can step into there uh, if you feel like it. I and mean, certainly you don't have to. Uh, but if questions that you really had on your mind and didn't get addressed, um, you can write those down and we can take time on that Sunday morning spot to, to address some of those also. But I asked John a few months ago if he'd be willing to come and, and do a New Testament seminar for us. Um, Partly because I just want to hang out with John more. Uh, John is probably my longest standing best friend. Um, We got to know each other when he was a professor at Trinity and I was a student. Uh, I took, I think it was my second semester there, took a preaching class from John. And uh, the first day of class, he steps up, and we're all very attentive, you know, seminary students, hanging on every word he's saying. And he says, guys, I'm going to tell you, the most important thing you need to know the whole time you're reading in this is the more, most important lesson you're going to learn. So, of course, we're all, we're all ready to take this. This is going to be pearls of wisdom from a professor here. And he says, here it is. The Bible is about God. <laughs> and I thought, you know, maybe I have very a teaching here. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't seem that complicated. But it was actually a profound lesson that I learned that John taught very well. That the Bible isn't just about character development or life lessons. It, it's profoundly about God. And uh, John is one of the, the few men, um, probably one of, he makes the top three who've influenced my life and my views of, of ministry in the Bible. Um, my dad is definitely up there and some people who I haven't even met before are up there through the writings, but John is one of those very, very influential guys in my life. Um, and he knows what he's talking about. So I'm very excited that John was able to be here uh, and share what he knows, and what he doesn't know, he's got books, and so we'll tell you everything, you know, he doesn't know. So, John, can I pray for you? You can feel free to say more. He's living in Lafayette, Indiana right now. Uh, yeah. Purdue graduate, so... Back in the day, right? Back
0: in, when they were actually still making
1: boilers in Purdue? Mm-hmm. The
2: microprocessor was invented the year I went to, just to college. Right.
1: So, he's old.
0: <laughs> Let me pray for you, John.
1: Father, I thank you so much for the ministry of John, to me personally, and to so many students who came through Trinity and the students who he's had, has had contact with through the years. Father, we pray that that ministry would continue to us tonight as students who sit under him for the next three, six hours. Father, we pray that the Spirit would be working in him and through him tonight and uh, opening our eyes and our minds to the just glorious truths that are there in the New Testament. I thank you for my brother, and I pray that you would bless him as he's with us and obviously bless us through him as well. Thank you, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 Hi. 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 Hi
2: disclaimers. Um, Yes, I'm a Purdue graduate and I live in Lafayette, Indiana. And so, if you know, a few things about Indiana University slip out of my mouth. I just need you to know at the beginning that they're totally unintentional and just kind of part of who I am. (laughs) And uh, things like, you know, I know you're from IU, but you probably can read. Or... (laughs) I know you're from IU, but you probably can turn on the television by yourself or things like that. Just ignore those. <laughs> um, the other uh, disclaimer that I have is that uh, most of the time I teach this material in a foreign culture, either in Ukraine or in Croatia, typically, where I am on faculty at two different schools. And so if I pause for an inordinate amount of time... It's because I'm waiting for my translator, <laughs> and I'm usually waiting for my translator. So I'll try to get into the rhythm where I don't need to be translated. But.
0: <laughs>
2: all right. Well, it's great to be here and uh, love this church in many ways. have loved Dan for a number of years, so it's good to be with you all. I think we're going to have a good time together exploring uh, what God has spoken to us about his son, And revealed to us in what we call the New Testament of our Bibles. So I'm going to use the notes that you have in front of you and we'll walk through those uh, pretty carefully. I'll add a number of things and use a number of scripture examples. But um, one of the things I want us to know about what we do uh, is that this really isn't about me talking and you listening. I don't like those kinds of situations and you probably don't really either. So what I'm hoping is that um, we will be more interactive. I'm glad you all have name tags on and some of you I'm just going to have to ask to write your names a little bit bigger or brighter than you did, but I'll walk up and ask you a question and if you know the answer that's great. If you don't just say, you know, I don't know or I've, I've been asleep for the last half an hour and I just woke up or <laughs> you know what uh, But I want us to I want you to be participating in this actively rather than passively, is what I'm actually saying. I want you to be thinking about your own responses. I don't expect that you're going to agree with everything that I say, although we'll all be right. You may not be there yet. So,
0: (laughs) and if you think that you need to
2: correct me, or you need to find out why I'm not thinking the way you are, or something doesn't make sense, please ask me, okay? As interactive as it needs to be. I will ask you, If you have a question about something that pops into your mind that isn't about what we're talking about at that moment, I would ask you to write the question down and save it for when we do get there or for a break or for a time when it doesn't disrupt the flow of that idea. Or if you see something in a book or you see something, if, if the question has to do with what we're doing right then, then ask me. If it has to do with something else, write it down and ask me at another time. So we stay moving forward. Okay. This is an enormous topic and we're going we're to skip a stone over the top of it in the next six hours. Okay. We're not going to cover everything that you might think we should, but we'll do the best we can to get to things that are of concern to you. The other thing that I would do, as I've written down here, that I'd ask you to do is that you actually engage the subject that we're talking about at any given time. And, and engage it both with what you think about it. This is what I think about it. This is what uh, questions I have about it. But the other thing I'd ask you to do is to really engage the Holy Spirit. Because this book, if anything, is a book that was written by the Holy Spirit. And he is as active today as he was when he wrote it interesting thing about this whole thing about being a Christian is that you actually have the author of this book living inside you. That's not the case for any other book, right? But for this one, you have the author who he lives here. So you can ask him while you're sitting here, what's going on? Is there something you want me to get? Is there a, a, a response that you have for me from what we're talking about? Is there a passage of scripture that comes to mind? Engage it in that particular way, and I think you'll get a lot more out of it than simply waiting for me to give you information. Okay? Um, I'm assuming, and I think it's a, probably a pretty good assumption, that most of you have, well, it is IU, though. Okay, well, it's a pretty good assumption that you all have read this book. Okay, now, I was told in the last seminar that you took from my friend Dennis McGarry that, that um, he gave you some reading that was um, more enjoyable than this book and a lot more than this book and so I'm sorry that it wasn't as much but um, I thought that of all the things you could read uh, to get ready for this seminar this is one of them because it's a pretty good summary of the big ideas in the New Testament theologically so don't be mad at me because we're not going to walk through this book Okay? I'm going to assume that you read it already all right? and that the material that's in here is something that um, you have you have kind of engaged with, and we're going to kind of go from here to the next place. Okay, so but if you have a question about something you read in this book, or you do want to engage something that's in here, um, we can do that. Okay, but my assumption is that this is material we've already covered, and we're going to do other things that besides this. Okay, we're going to focus on concepts and examples from scripture, some application. You have a reading list on your table. It's not exhaustive. Most of what's on that reading list is sitting back here on this table. Um, You can take anything you want off that table and take it home because Dan's going to replace it for me uh, when you do. (laughs) And uh, if you believe that or talk to Dan later. But they're just out of my personal library, things that I have read and appreciated and have helped me build my understanding of the New Testament. Sometimes it's easier to have them thumb through, see if it's something you might be interested in. Um, and then please order it off Amazon or WTS Books. Okay? Not Dan. <laughs> um, can I ask you a quick question? How many of you in this room have formal theological training of some kind? Seminary, uh, Bible school, um, All right, so you all can go home.
0: uh, (laughs) All
2: right. If at any point we're going too fast or too slow or this is not what you need, please tell me. Okay? And let me ask one more question. And not everybody has to answer, but is there something over the next couple of days that we're together, that we're talking about the New Testament, is there something that if we don't talk about it, you will be really, you, you just will want to get your money back? Okay. Is there something if we don't talk about it, you'll feel like this wasn't worth your time? Is there anybody out there with that kind of influence? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Okay, well, if you think of something, let me know.
0: Okay. I'm all your names back here. I need to get the two you. don't have a name tag. She'll get you. You don't have a name tag either. She'll get you. I've been
2: profoundly impacted by a little book recently called The Attentive Life by Leighton Ford. Leighton Ford. For the, the older ones of us, you will know as the brother-in-law, Billy Graham. He's married to Billy Graham's sister. And Blayden Ford is an evangelist in his own right. Was He's in his 70s now, but was very influential in evangelistic circles for 30 or 40 years and has kind of come to the place of, of retirement in his life. But this little book that he's written, kind of as he looks back over his life, has, has really begun to shape my understanding of how to walk out the things that we see in the Bible. Very, very helpful. I, I mean, I don't agree with everything in here, but let me just read just a little bit of the introduction because it sets, as I've written in, my, uh, in the last bullet on your first page, a little bit about perspective and passion. Where am I coming from as, as we approach the New Testament? And he writes here, um, My work has largely focused on evangelism, making friends for God, as I like to put it, but a shift has taken place, not from evangelism, for I am and always want to be one who shares the good news of Jesus Christ, but now is a time to pay more attention to my own heart, to deepen my own friendship with God, and to walk with others who want to do the same. Vancouver itself has been one of the busy places I have flown to across the years as I've preached in citywide meetings here and led the university, etc. So it is fitting that around the time of my first sabbatical summer here, attentiveness was beginning to matter to me. And those are two concepts there that I want to kind of set down as a, as part of my passion. This idea that... that uh, and what I really want to do at this point in my life is to deepen my own friendship with God and to walk with others who want to do the same. And I think that that is biblical. Not think it is, it actually is biblical. Let me show you a couple places that, that jumped into my, my heart as I read them with that in mind. One is in Psalm 25, not in the New Testament, but think makes the point David writes here in this time starting in verse 8 good and upright is the Lord therefore he instructs sinners in the way he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his ways all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. In verse 14, now this is the ESV, so it may be worded differently in yours, but this is the verse that caught my eye. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? I mean, do we really, I wonder, think about God in that way? The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. And if you think that that's just kind of David's emotional response to his world let I me mean, turn over to, to John John, uh, John the David of the New Testament and the way he expresses himself affectionately and in chapter 16 he says verse 15 let me see if I can get to the right place here. that's not the right verse sorry about that <laughs> Well, isn't that strange?
0: These are good. Yeah Maybe <laughs> 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 that's, that's what it is. I'm <laughs>
2: Are we keeping score? I need a whiteboard.
0: <laughs> no, that's the one thing
2: I don't have here, Dan, is a whiteboard. She didn't ask
0: for one. That's <laughs> what <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. There we go. It's 15 verse
2: 15. See? That's a typo. That's... Well, just because we're smart doesn't mean we can type. I guess. Huh? Right. John
0: fifteen fifteen. I'll start in
2: verse fourteen. Well, I'll start in verse twelve. He says, "This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, this is the verse that caught my eye. No longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you one of the places or one of the perspectives that I come to as I as I as I talk about the New Testament and study it and how we handle it is this perspective that God wants us to know him He does not stand aloof from us, but he wants us to be in a relationship with him that is meaningful and authentic and is mutual and actually involves all the parts of us that he's made, our heads and our hearts. He says, I want you to know what I have to say and therefore I'm going to make you my friend. And I like Lytton Ford the way he says this, that my passion at this point is to deepen my friendship with God, to deepen that relationship with God so that I'm, I'm listening, I'm attending all the time to what He wants me to know from His Word, through His Spirit, and in the world that I'm working in. And then there's another perspective here that I wanted to show you, this perspective that when we're working with the New Testament or the Bible in general, There's a heartbeat here that I think Paul describes in a number of places, but one is here in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul's talking about this ministry that he has, um, this ministry of the gospel, and he says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning, to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God for what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus sake for God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ but we have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's the that's the kind of heartbeat, the kind of um, of attitude I think we approach Scripture with. That we hold in jars of clay a treasure of surpassing value, and that we are stewards of this this manifold mercy and grace, this knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what we, we carry that around. So that's the most important thing that happens in any interaction when we have it with any person is that they see the glory of God in the face of Jesus from us. That is the most important thing that happens in any interaction is that they somehow get to see more of Jesus. Because of who we are, because of what we have experienced and read and understood. Okay, so I approach this whole topic of the New Testament, and and we're going to talk about a lot of technical things that will sound really, um, for some of you, it will just sound like, what in the world are we talking about? But, But I want to keep coming back to this place that this pours out of me from this passion of, one, developing a friendship with God... And to stewarding this grace, this treasure of the glory of God, and if we keep coming back there, we'll always have sound footing in the midst of all the other technical things that we talk about. Okay. Um, Dan raises raised that issue that I began all of my preaching classes with, um, and it sounds simple. It reminds me of the Vince Lombardi you know, story. It's anecdotal at this point. It's, it's probably what, what do you call it? Not mythical, but even beyond mythical. Now, the story of him walking back in the locker room after a failed first quarter or first half and whatever, however it goes, holding up a football, you know, in front of a bunch of guys, a bunch of refrigerators, you know, <laughs> and, you know, holds up a football and says, gentlemen, this is a football. All right. And uh, like, duh. And of course, duh, the Bible is about God. But why would I start a preaching class with that simple statement? Mostly because it's been a long time since I've heard a sermon about God. I've had I've heard sermons about all kinds of really good stuff, helpful things even. But it's been a long time since I've heard had someone take up the Scriptures. And actually ask the question, what is this telling me about God? He's the centerpiece of this whole thing. He's the reason we're here. And when you read the New Testament, it gets even more specific. If you read and study and think and talk about a New Testament text and you don't talk about Jesus, then you miss the point. Because the New Testament is about Jesus. And so that's where we kind of have to start, this whole process, is is all of this is going to be about Jesus somehow or the other, okay? So this is all this kind of beginning stuff, but I'd say, if I were to let you leave with something, if you left the seminar, you'd get your 10 bucks or your 20 bucks worth, I think, with these two things, and maybe you know them already, but, but if you want your heart to change, not just read this as a book and all the stuff we're going to talk about how to read it, what it is why we study it, how to find out what it means, what to do with it. All of that won't matter if these two things don't happen. If your heart doesn't change in two ways, and the two things I'm thinking about is, first of all, we need to develop the practice, if we don't do it already, of reading our Bible broadly. Okay? Lots of us are in the habit of reading passages, chapters. Many of us have the habit every day of getting up early in the morning and reading a passage, a chapter. But I would encourage you, if you want to become someone who has this deepening friendship with God and really understands how to steward the the glory of God in the face of Christ, the story, the whole storyline needs to be something that you're steeped in. And the only way you get that storyline is by reading lots of the Bible. So I would encourage you to take the challenge to read your New Testament in the next couple of weeks. Okay? If it takes you longer, I mean, come on, it's not that long. We read, we, I read more in one day on the internet than the, than the number of words that are in the New Testament, probably. I encourage you to read the New Testament in the next two weeks or month or before summer school starts or before the end of your semester. Pick a period of time two weeks, a month, six weeks. Read the entire New Testament through, okay? Just start to begin, just start reading. Get the whole thing in your head. Okay? And then when you get done with that, read the Old Testament all the way through. One sitting. Alright? I mean, okay, it's four or five hundred pages, but you know what? If it was a, you know, novel, you'd read that. So, I'm serious. One of the ways you get this right is to get the whole thing in your head. So... Read the Bible broadly. And then develop a practice of including with your scripture passages that you're studying, your chapters you're reading every day, include in that times when you just read. You know? Just read. Until you can't read anymore. Until you're, until you're too tired to read anymore. Okay? Just read. And just don't worry about it. chapter breaks or verse breaks or whether you change books. Just keep reading. Okay? get uh, Once a week, just Enjoy. Okay? That will change your perspective and your heart about Scripture. Because you get the story in your head and your heart. The second thing I would say then that will begin to change your heart is begin to pray your Bible specifically. Read your Bible broadly, but pray your Bible specifically. Don't read a passage of Scripture in your Bible. Until you've prayed it. And don't leave your reading of your Bible until you've prayed what you just read. Okay? Pray back to God every passage of Scripture that you read. I know I'm talking about the, the big swath passages. But you can pray some of that back to Him too. But I would encourage you to allow the Holy Spirit to direct your heart by praying through the text you just read and letting Him make whatever part of it He wants three-dimensional. Okay, those two things, broad reading and specific praying will set the pace of how you engage God through His Word okay is that fair? okay that's worth your ten bucks right there (laughs) schedule's there on the front page my contact information is here if during the time you're here you're just, you know there's Wi-Fi in the room here, right? So, yep. see. So if you're just really freaking out about something, OK, send me an email. My email address is there. If I see you, you know, feverishly typing, I'll know that you're disagreeing with me. And you can send me an email and I'll get it on my Blackberry. And maybe I'll read it and if I agree with it. <laughs> 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 But I'm serious. If you have a question, a comment, you've read a book, you have something you just want to interact about, send me an email. I interact with a lot of people. Okay, I have a blog. The only I have my blog down there, I only use that blog really when I travel, so I can get all the people that I'm. It's easier to just write in my blog and let everybody read that than send a thousand emails when I'm traveling. So, but my last blog, I taught this basic course um, to three different in three different settings in a number of different ways and all of kind of my reflections on that are on that blog and they're just amazingly insightful and if you don't read them I think your life would be you know much less valuable so <laughs> if you I just it there for, you know. all right
1: questions about any of that
0: 2 John 2.27 That's for you, the anointing you receive from him in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. But his anointing anointing, teaches you about all things. And that anointing is real. I count it just as he talks to you, remain in him. Mm-hmm. Exactly. think makes us know what you're saying.
2: Good, thanks, Wes. Wes, is that right? I'm only seeing two letters, so it's either Wes or Wed.
0: <laughs>
2: Wed may be accurate. And all right, we're going to go through. Our time together and answer four questions. When I look at the whole New Testament, I realize we're not going to be able to talk about all the stuff that it's all those books. Okay, so you can read those books. But what I did think would be helpful as we spend six hours or eight hours together would be to answer four basic questions together that will give, give us a way to move forward in how we read and use our New Testament. Okay. So the questions that I want to answer together, first of all, very simply, what is the New Testament? Now, that may be a the Bible is about God question, but I think we all need to be on the same page. OK, what exactly is the New Testament? Because there is not universal agreement about that out in the world. OK, so of course the second question that I want to talk about in the next session, hopefully later tonight, then, is given that we understand what the New Testament is, is the New Testament then actually relevant? And if it is relevant, why? All right. We'll answer those two questions hopefully tonight. What is the New Testament? And is the New Testament relevant? Why is it relevant? Okay. That'll give us a little bit of background in terms of where we're all at in terms of this this document we call the New Testament. Tomorrow we're going to answer two more questions. Those questions are going to dig into the idea then of meaning and significance. Okay. Once we know what the New Testament is and why it's relevant, then we begin to ask the question, how should we read, then, the New Testament? How do we discover what the New Testament actually means? And believe me, there's a lot of controversy about that, okay? And once we then get a sense of how to read what's there, we ask the question then, well then, what do we do with it, okay? So the question is, the last question is, how do we respond, how should we respond to the New Testament Which is the idea of discovering Its significance Okay So we'll go along those uh, The track of answering Those four questions And if you have other things That you'd like to talk about We can uh, possibly engage those two Or maybe this will be so amazing That we'll just have to come back And do more Okay Let's start with this question Then What is the New Testament Let me give you an illustration Last fall, I was in the Ukraine and and was invited one night by one of the other professors to attend a church service with him. Um, I believe it was on a Sunday night. It was the Sunday night service of a fairly large church in Kiev, Ukraine. Several hundred people go to this church, Grace Evangelical Church. Um, It was was a powerful service. A friend of mine, an Australian guy who was also teaching at the school, was going to preach that night. Um, and you'd think that that would be okay because it supposedly was in English, but this poor guy was Dutch. Okay, so he spoke English with a Dutch-Australian accent, all right? Well, he might as well have been speaking in Ukraine, Ukrainian because I would have understood about as much, but in any case, he's a really great guy. He was preaching and I was looking forward, so we went, several of us went, and we're all lined up on the in the pew, and we're watching the service, and I'm thinking as we're going through the service, wow, this is all in a foreign language. It's all Ukrainian, Ukrainian or Russian. And the assistant pastor got up, and a really warm, loving guy, a big, round guy, he was actually a cage fighter. You can read about him on my uh, on my <laughs> blog. This fellow in a former life was a, was a cage fighter, and his ears were all cauliflowered up, and and he was just a big guy. He was not a guy that you'd want to rough and tumble with, I'll tell you that. He'd break you in half. But uh, but the sweetest spirit. And I didn't understand a word this guy was saying. But I knew that he was encouraging his flock. because He was the associate pastor, I think. And he was telling them things they needed to know about the church and how to interact with each other and just opportunities for fellowship. A little bit of it was being translated to me. And then as the church service went on, all the kinds of things that you would expect to have happen in a church service with a body of believers in Jesus Christ. That's an inconvenient spot for that, isn't it? Began to happen. I actually took some notes on it. We, uh, we sang. Now uh, We sang in Ukrainian and in Russian, but we sang worship songs. And clearly, they were worship songs. I mean, Jesus translates into most other languages in understandable ways, so you know what you're singing about. We sang worship songs, we prayed, and God was lifted up, and Jesus was lifted up, and truth was proclaimed. There was a sermon in Dutch-Australian that I mostly understood, and then we all together came to the Lord's table. And the pastor explained the Lord's table, again in Ukrainian, so I didn't understand what he was saying, but I basically knew what he was saying. And we had communion together. And I'm an American with some Australians and some Canadians and some other people who weren't Ukrainians and some Russians. A whole room full of people from all over the world all sat there that night and worshipped Jesus and listened to the word of God and had fellowship around the Lord's table and heard testimonies about people's lives, and I understood about 10% of it. But I was able to completely and fully participate. Well, completely and fully, except for the fact that I didn't understand what I was hearing. How is that possible? Every element was in a foreign language, in a foreign context. But everything was fully recognizable. It was visitors and regular attenders participating in worship. How was that possible? How is it possible?
0: Bill? it says in, in um, I believe it's John funny That we're uh, that just as Jesus is one with the Father, we're one with both of them, mm-hmm. uh, and that we know each other wherever we go. Mm-hmm. So that's one. Point.
2: Sure. Exactly. I think there's a universal, transcendent, central focus here. What was which was what? What made it possible for me to worship in a foreign language? Mm-hmm. We're all Christians, but the central for the central universal, transcendent reality was Jesus, right? Jesus was at the center of that room. And because Jesus was at the center of that foreign place, 5,000 miles from here, in another language, in another culture, in another history, in another reality, me and the people sitting next to me could worship with people from there. Because we all worship Jesus. That's the central unifying reality of the New Testament. All the technical stuff we're going to talk about, genre and types of literature and how to interpret different parts of the Bible, and all of it comes together in this one place. It comes together around Jesus. And all the questions and controversies we have about justification and how to worship and what kind of music we should have and whether we should have this kind of carpet or whether the pastor should wear a robe or whether our church should have a sanctuary or whether there should be a pastor at all, whether women should preach or not preach or sit down or shut up or whatever, all of that comes, and I don't think that's true, by the way, but some people do, and all of those people still come together around one thing. It all starts to make sense if we focus on Jesus. That's why we study the New Testament. Okay? That's how we develop an understanding of what is this thing called the New Testament. It is a document that that center is meant to reveal who Jesus is. Okay?
0: Get that,
2: and a whole lot of other things begin to fall into place, which is why the church spent so long in her history trying to figure that out, who is Jesus. All right, well, what I, what I have here in, your, in the second bullet here under this idea of what is the New Testament is just kind of a rough sketch of how the church began to develop their answer to that question, Okay. The idea of what is the New Testament was not something that was clear at the outset. First of all, it took a little while for everybody to get one, or at least get a full copy of it, all right? And then we'll talk about canon and canon development a little bit later, but not everybody had everybody, every all parts of it at once for a while, all right? Well, I'm not sure exactly when there was an extant copy of all 27 books of the New Testament in one document, but it wasn't for a while, decades, maybe a couple centuries And then even when they did have that, not very many Christians could get their hands on one. All right. It wasn't like we could go to the bookstore and get ourselves a copy. Very, very few people had ever read the New Testament for hundreds of years. Right. All the way up until Gutenberg, really. And so we have, this, we have this kind of assumption, if we're not careful, we become anachronistic because we assume that, well, you know what, those first, those first, uh, second century believers, well, they knew what to do because they just got out their Bible and then they all sat down and they had a Bible study and they read it together. What didn't happen very often? Because there wasn't one for a while. So it, there was some time, it took time for this all to develop, all right? And uh, so what I have here is just kind of a list of a little bit of the process, okay? during the first centuries, there was a completion of this book, okay? It took a little while for all the parts of it to be gathered together and recognized as being Scripture. We'll talk about canon development later. But to be understood, first of all, that it was apostolic in nature, and because it was apostolic it had authority, For its face value. And so there wasn't such a thing as a theology developing as much as there was, here's what the text says, therefore this is what we're going to do. Okay? Here's what the text says, therefore this is what we're going to believe, and this is what we're going to do. And it was kind of a text dogma kind of immediacy for a little while. Now, problems began to develop when people from disparate parts of the Roman world began to think different things about it. And so questions began to get asked. But for the first couple of hundred years, it was fairly simple. The church fathers took over the process then, and they began to ask questions, specific questions about, well, then really, who is Jesus? How does Jesus and God relate? What? What is the, how does the spirit connect? What is the Trinity? What is it? Where did the spirit come from? From the father, from a lot of these specific questions about who is Jesus, how did he do what he did, what did he do for us precisely, the church fathers spent a couple of hundred years, three hundred probably, beginning to work those out, especially in places of the councils, and you can read about that in some of the church history books over here. This is the point here is that there was a developing understanding through the Middle Ages, a church tradition then came into play. And that church tradition grew in an importance and in an authority to the place where it really supplanted scripture. And so scripture began, the tradition began to be the touchstone by which scripture was, tradition was interpreting scripture. Okay? And that, that took place over about a thousand years during most of what we call the Middle Ages. 500 to 1500 or so, That process of the tradition of the church, what we would call Roman Catholicism today, was developing and became very powerful by the time we get to Martin Luther and the Reformation. And one of the big issues with Martin Luther and other reformers was, wait a minute, if what I'm reading in the Bible is true about its authority and about its source and about what it says about itself, and how it claims to be self-referential, it claims to be able to interpret itself, then what Roman Catholic tradition is telling us is wrong. And Martin Luther said, no, we don't need the tradition to interpret the Bible for us. The Bible can be interpreted simply by reading and studying it carefully. So that was the idea of sola scriptura, that the Bible is not beholden to tradition, and there's distinctions between Christ and scripture, and law and gospel, and a number of other things that that were developed during the Reformation period to help us see that this actually is an authoritative document. But that took 1,500 years, more. And right in the midst of that, after 100 or 150 years of, of the development of that theological clarity... Along comes the Enlightenment, where we decide, oh, you know what, we don't need God anymore. We're smart enough as human beings to figure this out for ourselves. Our reason is good enough. We don't need anybody to read some old book to us. We'll figure out life and meaning and purpose by ourselves. Thus you have the Enlightenment. Okay? And this idea of rationalism, which essentially means my brain is good enough in and of itself to figure out what life means and how to have relationships and how to get where I want to go by myself. I don't need God or any religious person to tell me anything. Okay? That changed the world for us as Christians. And now we had to interact with the people who were rationalists or developing a rationalistic view. And within that, a whole lot of things happened. Supernaturalism was rejected. The Bible was no longer an infallible record of divine revelation. There was this thing called a new hermeneutic that was developed—a way of interpreting the Bible or understanding what it means by looking at it instead of as a divinely written document, looking at it as simply a piece of literature that was the same as any other piece of ancient literature and examined according to the ways we would look at that literature. How did it? Who, where did we get this from? You know, who, whose words were these? What was their agenda? What was their motive? Okay. Um, how did the things that were written down get get transmitted to them how did we know they were right how do we know that they didn't leave out some important things okay so this whole idea of being able to look at the Bible rather than as a, a document that God gave us as revelation looking at it simply as a piece of literature without any authority base and say well this is what we think this means Jesus wasn't really divine Jesus was an interesting person who came along and had some interesting ideas um, about Judaism and about God, and and uh, he captured the attention and the mind of a few people, and, well, they got excited, and so they made up a big story about him. Of course, he died on you know, the cross and was forgotten, but these people kind of wanted to start a movement and so they wrote a whole bunch of things and they made up some stories and they created a Jesus character and then they decided that for him to be you know, powerful enough to start a religion he would have to rise up from the dead so they put a resurrection in there and a bunch of other things to make an exciting story and start a new religion that's the perspective of in a very simplistic way A lot of the Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment thinkers began to develop their thinking about the New Testament. This was, this probably started in the 16th century, and the Enlightenment probably, the the power of the Enlightenment probably lasted until the middle of the 19th century, although we're still living under some of its effects now, but... um, German criticism picks up the idea of modernism probably picks up in uh, in, the, in the German critical theories in the, in the mid-19th early to mid-19th century um, so there was a kind of a, a flow directly from the rationalism of the Enlightenment directly into kind of the critical uh, theological perspectives of the, of the mid-parts of the 19th century and the, and the German scholarship began to generate tremendous amounts of of writing and thinking from this perspective of the new hermeneutic in uh, from that liberal scholarship then developed this idea of a a historical Jesus, who was he compared to what is written in the Bible. A number of other movements came um, from that perspective. And eventually when we get to the first part of the 20th century, especially under Karl Barth, he basically said, wait a minute, he throws his hands up in the air and he says, liberal after World War One, especially, and he throws his arms up in the air and he says, wait a minute, look at what happened to the human race based on the ideas of liberalism. It didn't work. We had a world conflagration that killed millions of people. So he and others said, wait a minute, this direction that we're going with theology and this direction we're going with the Bible is working, we need to come back to some kind of an idea that there's something divine about this, there's something about this that's actually the word of God. And so they developed this idea called neo-orthodoxy. Now they never really went quite far enough with issues of inspiration and inerrancy and a number number of other important ideas, but but they, they wanted to try to regain ground that had been lost to liberalism and rationalism. At that same time, there were uh, believers in uh, in Scripture and inspiration. Believers that had that had come out of the, the theology of Princeton, for example, in the um, in the last part of the twentieth century or the nineteenth century, and uh, some of the theologies that developed there that came to a place where they said, "Wait a minute, we need to articulate what is true, what we believe is actually the case against this." liberal scholarship and so they did that and they basically they wrote this thing for example in the 20s called the fundamentals which is a series of little books which outlined what true biblical orthodox Christianity was that's where our term fundamentalism has come from from there in the middle part of the 20th century you had uh, evangelists began to spring up and from that Uh, this idea of evangelical, uh, a a gospel-oriented faith based in scripture, uh, orthodox in theology, and so Billy Graham, for example, would be an an example of someone who would be a spearhead of evangelicalism that uh, developed over the second half of the 20th century and kind of um, from there flowed into this probably in the late 60s, early 70s, this idea of postmodernism. We move from a a place where rationalism and reason are the centerpiece of how we think and develop our understanding of the world around us to this place where none of that works now. It's too arrogant. It decides for itself what is right and wrong. And postmodernism sprung to the stage through some French and German philosophers mostly, and eventually now has become the way we, we look at our world, at least not many of our older, but certainly the younger ones of us look at our world in a more postmodern way, started off with just kind of deconstructing everything, but in the church it has worked itself out in some good ways, some rethinking about um, what truth is and how we ascertain it revivalism and the emergent movement, and so all of that I just give you a a little ten minute sketch to say that there has been a developing understanding of the New Testament over time. This did not happen in a vacuum to get to the place where the things we're going to talk about now have occurred. Okay, So I know that that was just kind of a whirlwind, but I wanted to bring you through kind of quickly through you know 2,000 years of development of thinking there a lot of this is lined out in some of the background books that are over there and I can point those to you if it's uh, of interest to you but let's move to the next page on page 3 and and get to kind of more the, the meat here what does the New Testament then say about itself okay Maybe I should ask you guys, before you, you know, before we open up the Bible and begin to read passages, just from your own experience, if, if you had to explain to someone, you're sitting in Albania somewhere on a park bench, and an Albanian, and I, this is actually the case, this happened uh, similarly a couple of years ago, but you're sitting in Albania, this is a country that for 75 years was completely closed to religion. Boom. No religion of any kind was allowed in the country. To be practiced, brought in, looked at, taught. No Bibles, nothing. Okay? Now, 75 years later, the doors spring open, a bunch of missionaries come in. Okay? Now, you can imagine the situation. (laughs) They do not know anything. And all of a sudden, there's a bunch of Christians around reading Bibles. But they've never seen a Bible. They have no idea what it is. They're nominally Muslim, some of them. Some are Orthodox, there's a few Catholics leftovers, but there hasn't been a Bible around for them to read for 75 years. Nobody has one. So you're sitting on a park bench and you're reading your Bible. You're reading your New Testament. An Albanian fellow walks up and sits down next to you, looks over and says, What's that? And you say, Well, it's a Bible. What's a Bible? Well, it's a New Testament, actually. A New Testament. What's new about
0: it? Well, it's new because there was an old one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you ask, this, this guy really doesn't know. He does not know. He has to, So you now have to answer his question. What are you reading, Matt? You're reading the New Testament. What's that? What are you going to tell some that I was reading the story of God in his relationship to us the story of
2: God in his relationship to us
0: okay that's good I like that um, anything else? you don't know God so why would we want to have a relationship probably oh, the, the story of the way in which
2: God gave peace to the world They like peace. He would probably like that. So this is a book about God and peace. Is it a good
0: story? Good story. Uh, So the the good guys win? They win. (laughs) All right, Dave. What what would you say to him? What's that in the reading? Well, I was thinking somewhat along the same line as far as the story. But I would, uh, since you mentioned he doesn't know what God is, I would say the one who has created the earth where we are right now. As uh, sure, the story, the story here tells about how he sent his son to be here to bring peace, or bring love, bring joy, and uh, how that we can find life and hope in this life and after we done. Hmm. Okay, good. All right. Is that <laughs> sufficient? Anything, bud? I'm not going to talk about the end, I mean, I'll of start to purpose out why we are here and what man is, what man uh, is really like, and what his relationship to be, and that there's going to become a judgment. Mm. What's, this, what's this New Testament about? What's the story about? Mm. It's about? It's about, especially about a person called Jesus Christ. Who's that? Yeah, that's. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. The man that told us about God, he told us that God is well and the Son of God is love. And the Son of the Mount. Mm-hmm. Is that the teaching? Mm mm-hmm. So the is love he's defining this is a way to show our body's kindness our life. okay yes. I say it's a book about covenants and agreements God made
2: now this poor Albanian guy is pretty confused by now because one he's never heard of God and two Jesus Christ as far as he's concerned is a brand of cigarettes that's what one of them told me they thought Jesus Christ was a brand of cigarettes. Really? Yeah. So, um, this poor fellow knows nothing. I mean, you're already over his head. Love and peace and, and Jesus and, and all this business. You're so far over his head that he has to know beans and donuts at this point. Okay?
0: Well, so that's starting with a history book. All right? Mm-hmm. Everybody knows history.
2: Well, in Albania, history was kind of whatever the president told you it was. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well,
2: but this is a good place to start, because it is history. And history means something. It means that for your purposes, it is true. Okay? So you have to start somewhere. You say, it's a history book that records things that actually happened. Okay? Important things. We can start there. That's a good place to start. Okay. Where can we go from there? Now this guy knows nothing about anything. Okay. This is a real situation. Too. This is a million, this is two and a half million people in Albania.
1: You can say, it, it tells us what history actually <laughs> is, or we can say it's a story, it's a true story about the world that we live in, and we can say it talks about the talks about someone who created us and created everything. What you see now, me, you, the president, whoever that killed the president, and that
0: this person is called God, and that. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
2: <laughs> but you're right you're, there's a sense in which part of the problem is is that this poor guy has no story right he doesn't know anything he doesn't know this story he doesn't even know that the story is a story he should know
0: do you know anything about him? Is, is he, a, a, father? he is a father? Well, I don't know. I could ask him. I don't know him. So I would ask him asking. if he's a father and ask him to explain the love for his child and that the New Testament is about the love of God and he just loves you more than you love your child. Mm-hmm. Did you just do the warm and fuzzy thing. <laughs> <It's warm laughs> and it could be
2: good. that that would be the place that would touch down. So certainly we're, try, we're trying to hear, we're trying to grapple with this idea of what is this thing? To someone who knows nothing about it and has no background, no dog, no idea of history, history's been told to him, if it's Western, now you're a white Westerner that speaks English, so basically whatever I'm telling him is something his presence has been saying is, is meant to deceive him to the place of giving his country up to us. Okay? So I'm totally untrustworthy, and anything I might bring to him is going to be totally untrustworthy. So I'm really dependent on the Holy Spirit in this process, obviously, <laughs> to break some things down. But do you see the problem we have? We have a problem here because we have a situation where someone knows nothing about anything that we take for granted about what the New Testament says. But in many ways, that's the pagan world that Paul and other apostles spoke into. They knew about gods, and they had a very false view of history that came out of Greek mythology, and they had a, a very skewed understanding of their purpose in life and where how they got there. I mean, everything they believed about religion and about themselves was wrong. Now, that's not the case so much for the Jews, but even they had kind of a skewed perspective as well. But when you talk about the Gentiles that the, 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 the New Testament was written to talk to, they were as, as ignorant and as off-center as this poor Albanian guy. All right? So, how would you describe this? What is this thing that got written into that situation? And it's pretty powerful, right? Well, I wrote some things down here just to, to say, when you look through Scripture... Well, let's just start with what does it say about itself? And that's what I might do with this Albanian fellow. I might find the Albanian Bible and they are out there. Amazingly enough, there are Albanian Bibles. And in fact, Whitcliffe is now beginning to translate the Bible actually into the, the sub-languages, the sub-dialects of Albania. So you can read a Bible in Albanian. So I might get a Bible and I might begin by just showing him some things that it says. Now, he's not going to understand the background. He's not going to understand what the significance of it is. But at least you could start with the idea of, let's see what it says about itself. Okay? Let's just see. And the more we see what it says about itself, the more it will testify of its own veracity and truth and weight. All right? For example, let's just... I think I th- are these verses on the side of yours, your notes. Mm-hmm. Let's just look at Matthew one, okay? Matthew one opens. Okay? And it says what it is. It says what? Susan? Oh, you don't have your Bible open. Who's got their Bible? Open? Uh, I can't see. You guys need to use markers. You don't have yours open to Matthew One? Does anybody have Matthew one open? I need a name tag. What's your name? Christine? Read Matthew. Just the first verse of Matthew. Interesting. What version is that? Homer. Okay. What's your ESV say? The
1: true Bible. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham.
0: Okay. Does
2: anybody have an early inspired version? A A record
1: of A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay. Does anybody
2: else have some other version besides those? Who's who's reading an ESV in the room right now? Oh, come on, don't be bashful. (laughs) Smart guys are, okay. I
0: have a copy (laughs) of
2: (laughs) the All right, what are we working from in the room here? ESVs, NIVs, mostly NIVs, Holman. Anything else? King James? It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so, no problem with it. I'm just, I'm not, please don't hear me complaining. I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> <that's> <laughs> <useful>. <laughs> 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 it's, it's, it's unusual. <laughs> so, I have to the I have to do. No problem. <laughs> um, okay, so we hear, we heard that it is, yours called it, what, Christine? Yours called it a <laughs> historical record. The ESV calls it a book of genealogy. Okay, the other one, the NIV calls it the, the record. record of genealogy. Okay, so what do those words say? Okay, the Bible opens with these words. The New Testament opens with these words. You turn to page one, verse one, chapter one, says, "The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ." All right, what does that? What does the New Testament say that it is?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But but even more basically than that, David. Where it came
0: from. Okay. Mm-hmm. Where did it come from? Tied right into the Old Testament. Okay? Is there something that's missing? That's not missing you know, altogether, just from the okay. Old Testament? Tied okay. okay.
2: Very simply. Who, who just said that? Mm-hmm. You, you did. Okay. I was, the voice was hidden. If, what, what it says is it says it is a book or a record about someone about the family of Jesus Jesus Christ alright what does that tell you about the New Testament what am I reading it's about a person Jesus Christ and is it historical that's it there's the word I'm looking for these are sharp folks. it's a historical record which means what The person who wrote this record believes what about it? That it's true. It's not a myth. It's not an epic. It's not Greek mythology. It's true historical record. Okay? The New Testament at its outset believes about itself that it is telling you something that is historically true. Now, the reason I push that home is because in the world we live in, in liberal scholarship, that isn't a taken for granted. Okay? That is not taken for granted that this is a historically true, accurate representation of real things that happened. But the Bible thinks that it is. Right? Starts out with that. I'm going to tell you something true about somebody called Jesus Christ. Alright? Now, Joshua, is that right? Joshua, you mentioned something. You said, or Gira, you said it too. But Joshua, you said something. You said the words Old Testament. Where'd you get that from? Is that written in here somewhere? (laughs) It's not. Well, where'd you get that from?
0: From tradition.
2: (laughs) 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 Well, but I mean, you're explaining this to somebody who doesn't know anything about this, right? So, who's this David and Abraham, this group here? In fact, there's a big long list here through the first uh, 17 verses, 16 verses here. A big long list of names.
0: I believe that the the genealogy there is really important in that it ties Jesus back to our
2: Exactly. So the point that, that that Matthew is making here is that Jesus Christ did not appear in a vacuum. Right? That Jesus Christ, this person that's being written about in this book, this historical fact, did not just appear on the scene without some kind of expectation. Okay? This person that he's going to talk about in this book that he's writing. He says has a long lineage here. In fact, his lineage goes all the way back. Well, he lists it back to uh, to where?
0: To Abraham.
2: Luke, in his genealogy, when he lists this, he lists it all the way back to to Adam, right? So the point here, back to God, actually, son of Adam, son of God. You write the The point of the genealogy here is to say, wait a minute, Jesus Christ appears here in this book, but he doesn't appear out of a vacuum. He appears in a place historically where he has been anticipated and where his genealogy says he is part of something much, much bigger, much, much bigger than we're seeing right here. Okay. What? Now, if I had a whiteboard, did I really not ask for a whiteboard? I'm sure I did. (laughs) We'll get you on at the break. You asked me for what I needed.
0: (laughs) Purdue. (laughs) I don't even know where this this is holding or something. (laughs) I'm (laughs) from Ohio State. We can fix the problem without that.
2: We're almost going to take a break here. What I want you to do is. I want you to quickly, and we'll look at this later. I want you to quickly look at page six of your notes. I stole this. I used to draw one of these up on the board, and my my artistry is is um, suspect. So, I uh, I just I just stole this hookline sinker out of the ESV Study Bible. This chart here is what we're talking about, okay? When we open the book of Matthew, or open the book of Luke, or we open the book of John, we see immediately that the author assumes that we understand that Jesus did not appear in a vacuum, but he appears into the center of a historical reality that God has been at work at for a long time, okay? Thus the genealogy. And so, what we see as, the, as soon as we begin to open the New Testament is we see that the New Testament sets itself up as a fulfillment of something that God has been working on for a long time, for thousands of years. This is what we call, uh, what some people call, redemptive or salvation history. Okay? And this idea that redemptive history, that, that the Bible. The New Testament specifically is is describing an event and a person that fits into a place in God's overall strategy and plan for what he's doing with the world from beginning to end. That sets the entire context of what is the New Testament. Okay? What is the New Testament? Well, first of all, what it is, is, as you say, the story of Jesus Christ set into the framework of God's redemptive plan. And that's what this chart shows. Now, the chart basically says it's from creation to new creation, which is true. The idea here is that all of history, up to the point of the opening of the New Testament, all of history has been moving us to this place. Okay? History has not, been, has not been happening in some kind of uncontrolled swirl of events. From the perspective of Scripture, all of history, everything that's been happening has been under the sovereign hand of God and has been moving us to this place where we are right now as we open up the New Testament. Okay? The centerpiece of redemptive history is Jesus. And everything before Jesus has been getting us ready to see him and expecting Him to come, and telling us what He was going to be like, and preparing us for what He was going to do, and everything that happens from this point forward is the fulfillment of everything that God said was going to happen, starting with Jesus' life, His death, His resurrection, flowing out into the early church, and everything that's been happening from that time forward has been the response to what God has been doing, preparing us for the next big cataclysmic event in the, this timeline, which is Jesus coming back. The Bible storyline is the story of what God is doing to redeem His creation from the effect of the fall. Okay, and Jesus is in the very center of that story. Okay, and the, and the. Gospel writers, especially but Paul and even Revelation, make very clear that that's the direction we're going. Okay,
0: this is probably a good time for a break. Huh? So, what do we do?